0: chapter thirty four of carpenter's world travels alaska our northern wonderland by frank carpenter this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by betty b chapter thirty four the biggest thing in alaska the biggest thing in alaska is the government railroad by that i do not mean so much its five hundred miles of tracks its cars and equipment or the number of tons and passengers it will haul but what it stands for in the future of the territory. It means the building of feeder wagon and motor roads and the construction of other railroads. It means cheaper coal, lower freight rates, lower living and mining costs. It means more lands and resources flung open to the settler and the prospector. It means a new era of development and prosperity for Alaskans. The act providing for government railroads in Alaska passed March 12th, 1914 authorized the building and operation of railroads here to an extent not to exceed one thousand miles and at a cost of not more than thirty five million dollars on this authorization president wilson bought the alaska northern railway and decided to extend it to fairbanks a distance of four hundred and seventy two miles at a cost of something like twenty seven million dollars the construction of the road was entrusted to the alaska engineering commission Surveys began in June 1914, and dirt began to fly the following May. Steel was joined all the way from Seward to Fairbanks in the early spring of 1922. Today, Pullman cars and diners flash through wilderness, formerly traversed only by dog sleds. Mail now gets to Fairbanks from Seattle in nine days, instead of from one to three months. Freight reaches its destination in three weeks less time, than formerly. The original appropriation of $35 million would doubtless have been sufficient, except for the war conditions that brought higher wages and material costs. Later appropriations brought up the total for getting the line into full operation to $56 million, or just about eight times what we paid for the territory. Eleven millions of the money provided by Congress were used in building wharves, laying out town sites, paving streets constructing waterworks and sewage systems and developing coal mines along the right of way according to colonel frederick mears chairman of the engineering commission the alaska railroad has cost about eighty thousand dollars a mile inclusive of rolling stock and terminals or sixty seven thousand six hundred per mile exclusive of same by way of comparison in nineteen eighteen the property investment per mile on railways in the United States was something over $83,000. The three men originally appointed on the Alaska Engineering Commission were W.C. Edis, Frederick Mears, and Thomas Riggs, Jr., all of them extremely well-fitted for their work. Just previous to his appointment, Mr. Edis, a Western railroad builder with 30 years experience, had been in charge of construction of the Northwestern Pacific Railroad out of San Francisco. Colonel Mears had been in railroad work for 10 years in the West and in Panama. Mr. Riggs, later governor of Alaska, has been in the United States Geological Survey and immediately before his appointment was in charge of the Alaska International Boundary Survey so that he was entirely familiar with the territory. While the road was built not as a revenue-getter but to open up the country, in the opinion of men who have studied the situation, In four or five years, it will be on a self-supporting basis. It is estimated by the Commission that ultimately the revenue will be in the neighborhood of $1 million per annum, which does not include any estimate for coal movements from the Matanuska fields to tidewater for the United States Navy. While the southern terminus of the line is at Seward, the beginning of the old Alaska Northern Railway bought by Uncle Sam New construction began at Anchorage on Ship Creek, which became headquarters for the Engineering Commission. Anchorage, which rose amid the stumps of the trees that had such a little while ago to be cut out for its growth, is now a thriving railroad town with pretty homes, stores, government shops, an electric lighting system, sewage and waterworks, and one of the finest public schools in all Alaska. The school library contains more than a thousand reference books, Though it is a mere infant, its population numbers over a thousand and it is, next to Juneau, the largest town in the territory. It already has a lively social life with its parties and dances, motion picture theaters, and recreation park. There are many fraternal organizations as well as a Farmers Association, a Fair Association, and an energetic women's club. I was so fortunate as to see Anchorage in the stump, tent, and shack stage. Though it was growing marvelously fast i give you my notes just as i penned them when i was on the spot seeing how uncle sam's engineers and executives were putting through their big job i have come from sunrise the little mining settlement on kenai peninsula to anchorage the headquarters of the alaskan engineering commission anchorage sprang into being when the president like aladdin rubbed the rusty old lamp of congress and wished for that appropriation of $35 million for railroads in Alaska. The town is the nearest port to the Matanuska coal fields, and when navigation in Cook Inlet is open, which is from five to seven months of the year, it will have, perhaps, the bulk of the coal trade. It is for this reason that the people here expect a big city at Anchorage. They look forward to it as a smelting and manufacturing center, as well as a commercial port and are already talking of it as the financial heart of Alaska. I found the people of Seward jealous of Anchorage. They claim that their port will be the only real city at the southern end of the railroad, because Resurrection Bay is free of ice throughout the year. All steamers going to Anchorage have to travel several hundred miles farther. They must come up Cook Inlet, the great bay on the west of the peninsula, extending about 200 miles into the land the inlet in places is upward of fifty miles wide but it narrows at the northern end and is only a few miles across in nick arm where anchorage is situated the lower part of the inlet owing to the warm japanese current is open throughout the year the upper part freezes along in october or november and for a great part of the winter ships cannot come in the place is one of high tides the sea rises from forty five to sixty five feet in the arms of the inlet, and rushes in twice a day in a wall, forming a bore of somewhat the same nature as those in the Bay of Fundy, or in the Hughley River, up which one goes to Calcutta. I had some experience with the tide in coming from sunrise to Anchorage. We had to leave sunrise when the water was high, which was not until midnight. Our boat was a launch about 18 feet long, with a 12-horsepower gasoline engine there were bench seats around the side and only a canvas for cover the owner of the boat was a german storekeeper of sunrise and the engineer was his son a boy of eighteen the man refused to go unless he got at least thirty dollars but we managed to drum up seven passengers mr george parks of the government land office five prospectors and myself it took us about eight hours to go the hundred miles and the german was over six days getting back home we went out of Turnigan Arm to Fire Island, and after lying there for an hour to avoid the rough water, came on through Nick Arm to Ship Creek, and had to wait several hours more before the tide rose so that we could land. We might have taken a dory and tramped to the beach, but the mud at anchorage is of a blue glacial clay, as sticky as glue. The steamers usually anchor some distance from shore, and all freight is landed in lighters. The government wharf is high up on piles, and there are platforms a little below the floors of the warehouses upon which the lighters are anchored. They come in when the tide is high, and as it falls are upheld by the platforms so they can be unloaded at leisure. I like the way our engineers are handling their job. There is no red tape here at Anchorage. Fuss and feathers are absent. The engineer commissioners are as plain as pipe stems, tramping along with the men and going about the work on foot or on horseback. The two-story house put up for the commission here would not rent for over $15 a month in the states. Most of the clerks do their work in tents or log cabins. The forestry department is a two-room shack with folding cots. The commissary building is of logs, and the stables nearby, where from 50 to 100 horses are lodged, are of canvas. The hotel or mess room, for the men and government employees, is a log cabin where three meals are served a dollar a day. I have yet to meet an official who puts on any airs. Most of them go about with their pants in their boots, and the clothes worn by the three commissioners would hardly bring the value of the wool in them at a second-hand store. The railroad men receive higher wages than those paid for similar work in the states. The laborers employed are of all nationalities, while not a few are Alaskans. The engineers tell me they find it difficult to get Americans to do the rough work. They all want to be foremen, bosses, or timekeepers. They are willing to work hard as prospectors and miners, but they do not like to handle the pick and shovel at so much per day. The Alaskans are doing much of the clearing and have taken many contracts for ties. Today, I went over the part of the roadbed near Anchorage. The new railway looks as if it might form an exhibit in a national exposition. It goes through the woods, but the land on each side of the track has been cleared, and ditches drain away every bit of the water. I have never seen a better-looking roadbed anywhere. It compares favorably in appearance with that of the Pennsylvania or the New York Central. The engineers have the advantage here of building along hills formed of gravel, and all that has been necessary to get material for the fills has been to drive cuts into the hills at the side of the track. These cuts are then roofed over, and the cars are run into the bank, and loaded by gravity i understand that this is the character of much of the route between here and fairbanks and that a large part of the track will be easy to keep in repair a great deal of apprehension has been felt by many who do not understand alaskan conditions over the difficulty of keeping the road open in winter the commission expects to have comparatively little trouble from the cold or the snowfall the heaviest snows are near the coast and snow-sheds will be established there and in the region about Turnigan Arm, there is much less snow in the interior. The maximum fall at the summit of the main mountain range is only about seven feet, and this can easily be controlled by rotary snow plows attached to the engines at anchorage. The snow seldom reaches a depth of more than two feet, and the deepest snowfall is not over three feet during my stay at Anchorage. I have learned about the country through which the railroad will go from Mr. Thomas Riggs, Jr., who has personally gone again and again over every foot of the ground. He tells me that most of the region has not yet been fully prospected. The land is covered with moss and other vegetation, which so hides the rocks that it is hard to tell what there is. It is known, however, that the road will give easy access to many rich gold deposits, and it is certain that mining camps will spring up here and there all along the way from Seward to Fairbanks. There is quartz gold near the line of the Alaskan Northern, and there are quartz and placer mines in other parts of the Kenai Peninsula. Forty miles north of Anchorage is Willow Creek, which has a number of mines with a ten-stamp mill. A little farther north is the Talkeetna River, where there is good farming land. That part of the country is made up of plains and valleys, spotted with groves and covered with grass. A short distance to the west of it are the Yentna and Squentna mining districts where prospectors are taking out placer gold. One of the most promising mining districts along the new railroad is near Broad Pass where the line crosses the mountains at an altitude of twenty four hundred feet above the sea. The pass is about five miles in width and there are mountains on each side of it eight or nine thousand feet high. Off to the west can be seen Mount McKinley. 65 miles away, and on the east are the Cathedral Mountains and Mount Hayes, which is almost as high as Fujiyama or Pikes Peak. To the west of Broad Pass, discoveries of low-grade quartz gold are reported. Farther over in the foothills of Mount McKinley is the Kantishna Mining District, which has gold, antimony, and other metals. There are 60-odd miners and trappers there now, and some of them are doing quite well. Farther along the line are the nenana coal fields and then come the tolavana coal region not far from the route between nenana and fairbanks but most important of all the mining regions so far discovered is that around fairbanks itself the tanana valley railroad a narrow gauge road extending for forty miles north from fairbanks into the placer mining district has been purchased and is a part of the government railway system. This gives this rich mining district a direct rail connection with the outside. The Alaskan mining regions will profit exceedingly by the cheap fuel that will come over the railroad. Those of the Kenai Peninsula, the Matanuska Valley, and all south of Broad Pass now have cheap coal from the Chickaloon coal fields, whereas those on the northern side of the pass and in the Tanana Valley may be supplied by the great coal deposits of the Ninana region. The Chickaloon coal, which is from the Matanuska fields, is said to be equal to the Pocahontas. A branch of the railroad runs out from the main line at Matanuska Junction to Chickaloon. The government has mined and tested many hundred tons of it on the vessels of the Navy and it is found to be excellent. It can be used for cooking and it will be the first Alaskan coal of commerce. The Ninana fields are of vast extent. The railroad passes through them and it is downgrade all the way from there to Fairbanks. The coal deposits extend from the railroad eastward for a distance of perhaps 100 miles. Outcroppings can be seen on the cliffs and in places the veins are 40 feet thick. The coal is a high-grade lignite suitable for all local commercial purposes. It is not good enough to bear exportation, but it will be of enormous value to the miners in the interior. In order to appreciate what this coal means to the mining regions it must be remembered that most of the gold deposits are in frozen ground the frost and ice go down to bedrock the earth has been frozen for ages and it has to be thawed out by fire or steam a single gold mine would often consume from ten to twelve cords of wood a day and before the railroad could bring cheap coal nothing but wood could be used the fact that wood costing over thirty dollars a cord is giving way as mine fuel to lignite coal costing six dollars a ton delivered will result in enormous areas of low-grade gold-bearing regions being worked it means the opening of many new quartz properties and a great increase in the valleys and benches where the gravel can be washed over by dredging and hydraulic sluicing in addition to the cheap coal supplies to be furnished by the government railroad southeastern alaska is much interested in the 22-mile Alaska Anthracite Railroad, from a point on Controller Bay to the Bering River Field, where there is coal equal to the Matanuska variety. It is the field which the Guggenheims were popularly supposed to be gobbling when the great excitement about conservation in Alaska began, and it is, to a certain extent, accessible to Cordova and the Copper River Railroad. There are now about 500 farms in the Matanuska and Susitna Valleys not far from Anchorage, and there are many new homesteads in the Tanana Valley. All of these farms are being operated with a view to supplying the local market, and they are raising considerable produce, but by no means enough to supply the demands. The Railroad Commission is trying to bring about a system of cooperation between the merchants and the homesteaders, which will lead to less importation from the outside and a greater sale for local products. Many of the farms are springing up around the new towns, being laid out at every possible traffic center. End of chapter 34